Well, welcome. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad that you're here, and I hope you're not made uncomfortable by a 60-minute sermon that will begin now. I'm totally kidding. It is not going to be a long sermon, uh, but you are jumping into Revelation 20 with us. We are in the book of Revelation. Yes, that book where they make really cheesy, terrible movies about it, uh, both Christian and non-Christian. It's a book that is confusing to a lot of people, but the theme that runs throughout the whole book, a collection of visions, all telling us this story of the victory of Jesus and his church over the devil and the world. That's repeated throughout the entire book. It is the theme. It was written to give people hope who are experiencing persecution and tribulation. And today we're picking up in the middle of a vision. It's a vision of a thousand years. And we've seen that during this thousand years, the devil is bound, he's restricted in his capacity to deceive the nations like he had before Christ came. And we see that during this thousand years that there are saints in heaven reigning with Christ. But we're also told that at the end of that thousand years, the devil will be released and he will wreak havoc and deceive the nations. And that's where we're picking up. Revelation chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, even the parts that are hard to understand, because we know that you gave it to us to learn more about you, to learn more about salvation, to learn more about this world that we live in, and to even learn more about us and our place in it. So we pray that you would teach us open up our eyes to see that you'd cause us to grow in faith as we draw near to you today. In Christ's name, amen. So one of the problems that uh, that concerns me is when there is sort of a misfire in our biblical theological engine, right? It's um, It's like we have a belief that is accurate, but there is somehow a a frayed wire or something and so it doesn't connect to our lives in the way that it should. For example, there are Christians and sometimes we just slip into this in general but there are Christians who will come to the place where we say God is all powerful, sovereign and mighty. He can do whatever he wants. Nobody can stop him. Nobody can do anything to get in his way and because of that we think then I just don't need to try. I don't need to work. I don't need to do anything. I can just kick back and not worry about anything, not not concern myself with any affairs in this life. I can just let go and let God. This is a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. It's It's a disconnect. And I see it sometimes happening in in our eschatology as well. Eschatology, our doctrine of the end times, how we understand things to unfold in the very end. And we think, well, in the end, God's going to conquer evil. He's going to defeat all of our enemies. All the sins will be answered for. Peace and justice will be established and will reign. 
so I don't need to worry about anything today. I can just basically not worry about what's going on today because God's going to fix it in the end. It's all broken, and I helped to break it, so now I'm just going to chill until God makes it right. Again, he's going to make it right, but that doesn't call us to inactivity today. He calls us, he expects us to be active, to be hardworking, to be giving ourselves to him and his ways in this life. So with that in mind, I want us to consider just these verses, verses seven through 10 in Revelation 20, and keep this principle in mind. This is the whole point. The only thing that I'm hoping that you'll remember is this basic principle, and that is that the promise of Satan's defeat comforts us and calls us to act. This future promise of a future event, right? This, this, this thing that we're looking forward to when Satan is finally defeated and cast into the lake of fire, that future event comforts us and it calls us to act. We'll see this by looking at Satan's release from his prison after the thousand years are up and then his ultimate ruin. So in verses seven through nine, we read about Satan's release from the thousand years, right? And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. So if you weren't with us, we'll just recap it very briefly to say, in the book of Revelation, numbers are used generally symbolically. They're not hard numbers that we are meant to interpret literally. And when the thousand year reign of, of the Christ and the saints or the thousand year uh, bondage of the devil is put on display for us here, what we are at least exploring, what I'm teaching here is that this is a long period of time that depicts what God has done through Christ between Christ's first coming and his second coming. During this time, the devil is restricted. I know the imagery is very severe. He's chained up, he's thrown into a pit, it's sealed. Seems like he's not doing anything. He shouldn't be doing anything. But in some way, this restriction, this binding, this imprisonment hasn't disallowed him from actually being active in the world. The main point seems to be, to the best that I can understand it, that during this time, while we wait for Christ to come back, the devil is restricted in his ability to deceive the nations as he used to because God has empowered the church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the word to preach the gospel and to see spiritually dead people come to life. But at the end... We're in the last days, but at the very end, before Christ returns, there is a short period of time. There's a long period of time, a thousand years, followed by a short period of time when the devil is released. Now, his restriction then is lifted, right? He will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Now, you might want to ask, okay, so why is this? Regardless of what view you take of when this happens, Why is he bound for a thousand years and then why does God just say, okay, you can go out now for a little bit before I finally end you? Why does he do that? You want me to tell you? I don't know. I have no idea why. I don't know why God does that. It's not how I would do it. Uh, It seems to me like it would have been better, right? In my thinking, you're just like, okay, well, the, the devil's bound and then when the time is up, fine, you take him to the lake of fire and drop him in. Why do you need to let him out? Why does he need to deceive the nations again? What's the purpose of that? I don't pretend to have all the answers. In fact, if you're reading your Bible and trying to make sense of it, you'll come away with so much wisdom and so much knowledge, but it's going to leave you with many more questions than you had going in. We don't always know why God is doing what he's doing. We should be grateful to know what he's doing, if not why. 
Now, whatever, whatever reason it is to let the devil out to deceive the nations and then to finally end him, we do know this, it will ultimately work out for God's glory and the good of his people. But we have to be willing to say God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than us and his wisdom is greater than us. So we submit ourselves to this plan. See, the devil is not escaping from his prison. He's not breaking out, right? It's not an action flick. He is released. He is set free from his captivity and he, was, he will deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. This is what the devil does. The devil is known for this. I mean, he's, he's doing this now. He's done it in the past. He'll do it in the future to, in greater measure when he's released. What he does in the future is what he's doing now, but he'll be, he'll be more effective. He'll be more devastating. And that is he will deceive. He is a liar. He is an imposter. There's a lot that we can say about the devil, but liar is one of the main things. In John chapter eight, verse 44, Jesus says this to the, the, the Pharisees who were rejecting him. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil lies and oftentimes he's so effective at lying and deceiving because he presents himself as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tells us that he masquerades, he presents himself as something beautiful and truthful. He's winsome. If the devil pre presents himself uh, as who he really is, death, evil, wickedness, deceitfulness, in all of his horror, very few people would follow him compared to those who follow him when he presents himself as wisdom and enlightenment. But in fact, he lies, he pretends, he holds out the offer of truth, but he only gives you deceit and trickery. He tempts us and seeks to destroy us. Well, the devil is going out to deceive the nations in the end, in the very end, when this increased time of persecution and tribulation happens, it says he's going to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. So let's think about that, Gog and Magog. In gathering the nations together, he's referencing Ezekiel 37 and 38, right? Gog and Magog. And Gog and Magog were referenced in Ezekiel as invading armies who will be coming from the world to war against Israel and God's people. And you don't really know who Gog and Magog is. It's not identified in scripture. It's just invading armies is the picture. And so here he's picking up on that very theme, right? This very idea, okay, invading armies. The devil is going to deceive the world and then gather them together. Think about this, that the nations will finally experience unity. The world will finally come together in their hatred of Jesus and the church. The world will finally come together and find a common purpose in seeking to destroy the truth of the gospel and the work of God through the ministry of the word. This is what we see happening. This is going to be the future. Christ and the truth and the church are going to be attacked. That's what's going to be attacked. That is what persecution looks like. So let me be really clear here because sometimes I think we get confused. Christian, 
You're not being persecuted for Jesus' sake because you voted for somebody that half the country hates. That's not persecution. You might be right in who you voted for. You might be wrong. Half the country might be crazy. More than likely, we're all crazy. But that's not persecution. You, political battles and, and, and social justice wars, all these things, as important as they may be, that is not the danger that we're talking about. That certainly isn't the nature of persecution. Don't confuse culture wars with the war against Jesus. We're so quick to go there and think like, yes, this is my time to stand up for Jesus by voting for a particular crooked politician. They're all crooked. Well, my crooked politician is less crooked. Okay, well, you're not doing it for Jesus. I'm not saying it's wrong to do it, but don't confuse it. This is an age-old battle, this war against the church, right? It's not a military war, it's a spiritual war. It's the devil deceiving the nations and bringing them against the church through the encouragement and development of false teaching, bad theology. Yes, through persecution, so there is oftentimes violence and restrictions and consequences in this world. But also through temptation and just enticing people of the church, the people of God to abandon the faith, or if not abandon the faith, at least abandon the ways of God that, that impinge on our personal desires. You see, this age-old battle that's been going on, the devil's work in the world, it's happening right now. Christ is giving us victory progressively over it, but he's going to be released, and so this battle will be more intense and have a greater impact in the future. And what will the church do? What is the church supposed to do when tribulation is bad, when the day of evil comes upon us? What we have to do in the end is what we have to do today. It's the same thing. It doesn't change. Like our role doesn't change. Our role is the same. And that is we must fight. We must fight a spiritual war. We have to fight this spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter six is a very helpful passage for us. Ephesians six verses 10 through 18 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. What will the church do when the evil day comes upon us? We will fight. What are we doing today in the midst of evil days? So yes, there's gonna be greater, more intense difficulty and tribulation in the future. But we are told to live today with wisdom, making the most of our time because the days are evil. 
Because Satan still is active. He still looks to devour. He cannot deceive like he used to because the gospel is spreading across the globe and God, by his spirit, is using the word to bring people to faith in Christ and to sanctify them. But he will pull the restrictions off of the devil in the end. And what they must do and what we must do is consciously embrace the graces of salvation, the graces that accompany salvation, the assurance that we have from God's spirit, the the fact that the spirit dwells with us and is causing us to grow and to change and to become the people that God has designed us to be. We live by faith and our faith is a shield, not in that our faith itself is so strong, but the one in whom we believe is sovereign. It's not your faith that is so impressive. It's the object of your faith, your savior. We're told that we actually need to stand against the schemes of the devil, his plots, his plans, his ideas, his teachings, his false narratives, his his ideologies, his winsome and sometimes very beautiful sounding pitches of how to live a more fulfilling life. All of it in conflict with God's word. We stand against it in all spiritual forces by embracing a mindset that says, God's strength is enough for me to step into the fight and resist the devil's schemes. And we have this assurance, right, that those who resist the devil, the devil flees. So we fight, but not as the world fights. The promise of Satan's defeat actually comforts us and it calls us to act. And so here we have Satan's ruin, right? His release is going to lead to his ruin in the second part of verse nine, but we'll just start at the beginning again, verse nine. And they marched up, that is the nations, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. There is judgment in fire that falls upon the world in the midst of their attempt to destroy God's truth and God's people. All the armies of the world could not beat the church. Think about that. All of the nations, all of the people finally united in a satanic alliance that they are probably largely unaware of. They will come against the truth and they will be soundly defeated. Their attack ends in their destruction. It says fire from heaven comes down and this is just a picture of the great day of the Lord, the day of judgment when God's people are delivered and vindicated and those who follow the devil are judged. And not only is the world judged in fire, but Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire. See verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. See, this, this I like, I like this because You know, we want people to be held accountable. And so we see, okay, the wicked who were doing the deed, they got judged. But what about the one pulling the strings? What about the one orchestrating everything? What about the mastermind behind it all? You know, the people that usually get away with the crimes and the lower level criminals usually do the time. Here we have Satan, the one who had deceived everybody. He is cast into the lake of fire. He too is ruined and he's thrown in. He's thrown into this place of judgment that lasts forever. It is everlasting. It is not temporal. It's not a thousand years. This is forever. And he's thrown into a place where these other figures that we see in these visions are cast. 
right? In, in chapter 17, verse 16, it looks like the prostitute, right? This vision of the prostitute deceiving the nations. She's cast into this fire. The beast and the false prophet in chapter 19, verse 20, they're thrown into the lake of fire. And now the devil, this unholy trinity, aligned together against Christ, is destroyed and put into everlasting judgment. This shouldn't surprise us because this is the theme of the book, the victory of Jesus and the church over the devil and the world. And we've seen Satan in these visions attempt again and again to do his worst. And he fails. In chapter 12, verse four, he tries to kill the child of the woman. Do you remember? And he fails. In chapter 12, verse nine, there is a war that he instigates in heaven and he loses the war. In chapter 20, verse three, we see that he is bound and thrown into a pit and now... He is finally cast into eternal fire. Okay. So this is the vision or the part of the vision we're looking at. Satan's gonna be released after this thousand years. He's gonna wreak havoc. He's gonna deceive the nations. And when he unites the world against the church, the devil and his people will ultimately be destroyed. So what do we do with this? Well, on the one hand, it should encourage us and comfort us to know that all sin will be punished. Listen, I I don't know about all of you, but I know that many of you are grieved because there is sin and evil in the world and people are hurt, But, but the evil oftentimes get away with it. We've got bad actors in every arena of life, right? We, I mean, listen, even the people that you're supposed to trust, you know, doctors can be murderers, the cops can be criminals, politicians, well, politicians are corrupt, but you know what I'm saying, like, there's, there, in every area of life, there is no hope of finding absolute purity, there's always corruption, and when we see evil Getting away free without consequences, you might wonder, well, where is the justice? Where is the final say? We want the the scales of justice to be actually balanced. Is evil going to win? Well, the answer is no. Evil is not going to win because all sin will be punished. No sin is overlooked because all sin is an offense to our holy God. Now, that should lead you to ask a question, which is, all right, well, if God's going to punish every sin, then how can anyone be forgiven? I mean, what's my hope of being forgiven if he punishes every sin? Because I've sinned more than most of you. So I know I can't cover my sin or hide my sin from him. I I certainly can't make up for it. So how can we be forgiven if every sin must be punished? So let me just point you to one verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the gospel message that we preach, that Jesus is the substitute for sinners. He suffered, that is, he suffered for our sins. Our sins have been punished In Jesus Christ, in his work on the cross, he actually took not just our shame, not just our guilt, he took all of our condemnation upon himself. He received the perfect measurement of God's wrath for each of our sins, endured it all, absorbed it all. Why? So that we could be redeemed, so that we could become the righteous, 
He took our unrighteousness and gave us his righteousness. This is how God can forgive. He has to punish sin. So either we will suffer for our sins or Jesus suffered for our sins. This is why we look to Christ and preach Christ. Now, how should we respond? Uh, what should we actually do? I just wanna give you three quick things to, to do in response to this. Um, one is I wanna encourage you to not fear evil, right? We should, in light of what we know, that Satan's defeat is certain. We should be comforted and we should be called to act. And one of these things is, is we shouldn't fear evil because evil is actually doomed. You know, Psalm 23, we read it at funerals quite a bit. People are reading it when they're going through a difficult time because in the Psalm we read, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Even though he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death, David says, I, I, I fear no evil. Why? Because he says, you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David's not afraid because he's not alone. He can walk through the darkest, most difficult, most painful, most lonely days of his life and not be afraid of the evil that's out there. It's not that the evil doesn't exist. It's not that there isn't a boogeyman in the dark. There is. But God is with him. A sovereign God, a good God, a loving God, a present God, an all-powerful, conquering God. His Savior, Jesus, walks with him. He walks with us. We don't have to fear evil because we already know how it plays out. And that doesn't lead us to inactivity, but activity. It means we actually can fight with enthusiasm the spiritual war because we know how it turns out. Don't fear evil. Number two, related to that, adopt a fighter's spirit. We should see the need to fight for ourselves, for our souls, and for each other. Because the risks are real. People are deceived and led astray. People fall into patterns of sin that they find a hard time getting themselves out of. We can have desperately negative impacts on one another or we can have a tremendous influence for good on each other. You see, your fight for your soul isn't ultimately just for your soul, it's for other people around you. And it's not just for them, it's for the glory of God. It's not just a future fight that we're talking about. We're not just considering eschatology as some idea, like, oh, in the end, boy, it's gonna be rough for them. They're gonna have to fight. You have to fight. I have to fight today. And number three, finally, if this is true, <laughs> that Satan's doom is sure, then the promise of Satan's defeat, it's gonna comfort us, justice is coming, and it's gonna compel us to act and one of the things it should do is it should move us to share Christ with everybody because every sin must be answered, because judgment is coming. And those that do not find their hope and their help in Jesus will ultimately find it in the devil, whether they know it or not. So share Christ. I'll close with this passage of scripture. It's a call to action for those who believe. 2 Corinthians 5 Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
church, you, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Now, maybe you're like, I, I don't know what to say. I get nervous when I, when I, I, don't, I don't, I'm not good at talking to people about Jesus. Listen, that's fine. Most of us get nervous talking to people about Jesus. Most of us mess it up. God isn't restricted by our mistakes. But even if you don't know what to say or if you're just too scared, that's okay. Just invite them to church. Just get them here. Everybody can do it. Hey, man, I want you to come to my church. We got a funny looking, pasty white, sweaty bald preacher and it's interesting. Like, I don't care why. They, bring them in and, and the gospel will be presented to them. And if you're here, I hope you heard this last passage. The gospel offers reconciliation. That means reconciliation between sinners and God. And it doesn't offer reconciliation based on you making amends or cleaning up your life or doing the things that you need to do to repair the relationship. You can't. The reconciliation is a gift that God himself offers us to Jesus, through Jesus. Jesus paid for our sins and our rebellion which caused the rift and the separation between us and God. And so the father sends the son to save sinners. The son says, come to me and you'll find salvation for your souls. You don't have to pay for it. I've paid for it. He invites all and welcomes all who come to him with their arms open, holding on to nothing, but accepting the mercy and the merits of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word, your spirit that helps us to understand your word. We ask God that, that you would move in each of us, that we would be a people hungry for more knowledge of you, that we would be satisfied with you above everything else in this life, above every other great gift that you've given us. Help us to find our ultimate satisfaction in you. Give us the strength to fight spiritually. Give us patience to endure hardships and, and tribulation and give us joy that the world and the devil can't take away. In Christ's name, amen.